0: Welcome to American Redemption, the show where the next generation of American patriots learn to fight back in America's toughest cultural battles. Hello everyone, and welcome back to American Redemption. This is episode 46. We have a really awesome episode today, a very special guest, uh, masculinity and men have been trampled on for decades now. And our guest today is someone who really understands that and is doing everything he can to fight that and to restore authentic masculinity which the world so desperately needs. So Will, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
0: Happy to do it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes. I'm the host of the Renaissance of Men podcast. And the Renaissance of Men is a 40-year process to rebirth and redeem masculinity for a world that desperately needs it. And so in my podcast, I interview uh, speakers, authors, thought leaders who are all participating in and contributing to that global rebirth, um, which is also leading to a rebirth of femininity. Um, and both of those together lead to what I call the great reconciliation. So all the content that I create, whether it be on my podcast or on Instagram or Twitter, or all the places I cause trouble, uh, is all geared to that ultimate end.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. We, we love that message. Um, I listened to one of your more recent episodes today where you read a review, uh, from a, a woman actually, and which was surprising. I, I didn't, a lot of uh, people in this space, the audience is very heavily masculine. Maybe yours is too. Ours is ours is like eighty or ninety percent men. But your podcast seems to have a to reach out to women as well. Yeah. And you talked about how it's also going to spark a rebirth of femininity, which is awesome because they do go hand in hand. They need to be intertwined. What's your experience been on that front? On how does restoring masculinity also restore femininity?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually really stunned to discover that there was a rebirth of femininity that's already happening. Um, so I started my podcast in October, 2020, and I started creating content mostly on Instagram because that's what I was familiar with, because I, I had done a lot of travel and nature photography. And so, um, and so I started my podcast um, and on Instagram, and then I discovered very quickly that there was already a rebirth of femininity happening. And um, once I discovered that, um, I realized that the way that it seems to work is that we have this um, inverted social order where men have been uh, turned into boys, um, and in some cases women, but that's another, well, sort of, Hmm. that's another conversation. And women have been masculinized. So women are encouraged to be like men, and men are encouraged to stay as boys. And what that does is that inverts the social order. That means that many men are being led by their women Many churches are being sneaky led by women. Government is being led primarily by the you know, the impulse of the feminine. You see this in abortion and, stuff and things like that. And so this is a symptom of the inverted social order. But when but you it doesn't actually serve women. They don't many of them don't actually enjoy it. They feel that something is wrong. They feel it in their bodies. It feels unnatural. They're not enjoying a lot of the wokeness. And many of them are getting older and not having children in the biological. Impulse to partnership and romance and love is, is springing up in them, and they're realizing that something's wrong. And so, the Renaissance of Men, like I said, is a 40 year process. Now, I didn't start it, I just saw it and I gave it a name. And that process of rebirthing masculinity is creating strong, godly, confident men who create space for women to begin unplugging themselves from all the, the, the feminist dogmas essentially that they've absorbed. So by creating space where, where, so that men claiming space and being men have allowed women to return to being women. And so the content that I create is meant to encourage both of those, encourage both of those processes.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I I think that's a very important thing that needs to be focused on is that balance. And um, yeah, it really does seem like women have been burdened with this inverting of the social order in many ways. It's time for, for men to step back up.
1: Yes, I mean they they've been burdened with it, and part of the burden comes from culture and society placing the burden on them and encouraging them in that direction. There's also been a failure of their parents, of fathers and mothers, to really disciple them about what it means to be a godly woman. Woman, and so it sends them in the direction of careers and and culture, and um, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually serve them. But it's it can be very frightening for them to imagine the alternative because the ground has been so salted with fears of quote unquote patriarchy and abuse and the handmaid's tale and all that stuff that they've actually been taught to fear a godly way of being. And so I think the reason why my content succeeds with women is that I do a couple things at once. I hold them accountable personally for their wrong beliefs. I think that's really, really important. Um, A lot of men in, in this space will blame men for everything um, and I don't think that that's appropriate. I think Christ relates directly to women, uh, I guess, person to person. And you see this all throughout the Gospels. And so it's important to do that. But it's important to do it in a way that doesn't shame, that doesn't belittle, that doesn't look down on them, that honors them as, as uh, equals made in the image of God. And to be able to do that is, is a very delicate process. Um, and from what I hear, I do it well. And I, I think it shows by uh, my audience, which at least on Instagram is 60% men, 40% women. Um, I don't know about oh, wow. my podcast, but yeah, it's a pretty, it's, I was surprised when I saw that too.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. That shows that there's a desire for it from yeah. both genders. Excellent. So, uh, I think there definitely seems to be a, uh, crisis of purposeless, like lack of purpose among men in our society. Do you think that's the root cause or just, or would you say it's a symptom? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, yeah, men's, men's purposelessness is a is an interesting one. And I think part of that comes from the way that uh, men have been raised for the past couple generations, particularly beginning with the baby boomer parents and possibly also Gen X parents, is that we were raised to get jobs. Your responsibility is to do good in school so that you can go to a good college and you can get a good job, right? And so the thing with a job is, or a career, is that you're working for a large organization. And by large, I can mean anywhere from hundreds to thousands of employees. And so you're disconnected from the product of your labor. You take a bit of information and you add some of your own value to it, whether you put in a spreadsheet or you revise a design or whatever it is, and you move it down the chain. And then it eventually ends up you know, somewhere out there in the world selling a thing and the sale of the thing you're disconnected from. You're part of some big conglomeration of people, and you're very disconnected from the product of your labor. That's what a job or a career is, and that's increasingly happening with lo- with doctors as well. It's, it's kind of spreading everywhere. It's a corporate mindset. And the thing is, when men are are in environments like that, they are disconnected from the immediate impact of what they create, and they, they lose the ability to think entrepreneurially, which is you hunt, you kill, you eat. If you don't hunt and you don't kill, you don't eat, which is how men lived for a very long period of time. It's in that hunting, killing, and eating that men find their purpose, being Mm. directly connected to the product of their labor. And so this is the way that men have been softened to just kind of go along with the flow in their job. And so they don't know what it is to actually actively pursue something of value for them. That, that results in a meaningful um, impact in the world. And so that, that I think is where the crisis of purpose came from. And so now it's showing up in men who are like, I, I don't know, I just kind of go along with what everyone tells me to do. And that's what I was told to do when I was a little kid in my public school. And that's what I did in high school. And that's what I did in college. And now I'm doing that in my career. But why is my life so empty? Because you've never actually had to pursue anything besides a good grade or a good, or a good university or the stamp of approval from a boss, which is very different from, I am going to go get this thing and put forth effort to achieve it because the end product is personally meaningful to me and no one else. Men don't know how to do that. And so, um, but that's a fundamentally masculine skill that we all need to cultivate.
0: Do you think pursuit of virtue is purpose enough or do you really think that entrepreneurial aspect is necessary?
1: I mean, entrepreneurship is is a field that it finds expression in. You can also think about it in in a creative, in something creative, whether like the pursuit of excellence. Now, you can become excellent in playing the guitar or painting or whatever. I do think it should ultimately have some level of commercial benefit, but you don't need to make it your day job. But you Mm -hmm. have to be able to put something out there into the world, into the market of the product of your own hands and experience whether there's demand or not whether it's, it's liked or not and and face the possibility of rejection, right. Or, or, uh, you know, even harsh rejection or constructive criticism. I think that's an important part. Money is the most objective way to measure that. Right. Versus uh, versus likes on SoundCloud or, or whatever it is. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, I think in your question about virtue, you know, a virtuous man sitting alone in his apartment, I mean, congratulations, I guess, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think virtue finds itself in, uh, particularly in men in a, and we might call a, a, a matrix of, of social engagement. So a virtuous man on his own, I would question his virtue. You have to identify your virtues in relation to the communities of men that you find yourself in. And that's when you discover whether your virtues are real or not, um, v- versus if you just imagine they are. So get out there in the world is, is the basic point.
0: Yeah, that's very fair. I think a, uh, a virtuous man probably would be finding other things to, to fill his time with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have you have to, if you're going to go to all the trouble to cultivate these virtues, I don't know what virtues you can cultivate in isolation, but say you're cultivating them. If you then have them and you're not putting them into practice out in the world, how do you know you really have them? You don't want to deceive yourself, right? You want to make sure that you're being honest with yourself that you actually have them. And the world will tell you very clearly whether your business idea is good, whether your music is any good, whether you're mm-hmm. you're as fit as you think you are, whether you're as strong as you think you are, whether you're as smart as you think you are. So you can have all these virtues, but you don't know the degree which you have them until you put them to the test around, around other men and allow them to be sharpened.
0: Yeah, the uh, masculinity needs some of that competition. It's good for us.
1: Yeah, yes. I
2: saw... I saw that immediately on your website. It's the first thing that popped popped out to me, the uh the Iron Sharpens Iron and I love that we uh, we
1: subscribe to that. That's that's awesome. Thank God for that. Thank God for that verse. I hear it probably like once a day, right? <laughs> I know, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so cool. Such cool language, too.
1: mm mm-hmm, Mhm. Yeah, it's it's and it's accurate. And it's accurate. Um and there are things that are harder than iron that also sharpen iron, and that's what we turn to. That's what we turn to God for.
2: Mm. That's right. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But I think you bring up a really, a really good point with that. That I mean, in the the modern sense, they've they've kind of summed this up as like you are like the sum of like the people that like you hang out with and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I th- I think yeah, un- unless we're out in the world cultivating virtue. And like what we actually, what we, what we believe in, like what, what, what good is it? You know, if you're just hiding in your house and you're like, oh, I, I, I believe this or like, I'm a man. It's like, all right, well, like men take action. Like you said, like that's inherently by our nature.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and, um, if you're hiding in your house and you're actually a useful man, if you, if that is actually true about yourself, I think you would, I think I would say you're failing in your duties as a man. Because your duties as a man is not to just cultivate virtue for virtue's sake. Men are meant to be useful in the garden, right? The two commands that God gives to Adam were to cultivate and keep the garden, right? And you can think of keep as in protect. So right there in God's design for Adam is to provide, cultivate the garden, provide food, and to protect. You're not going to be able to do either of those if you're just hiding in your apartment, or your house or where or out in the wilderness, like you are called to be in service. And so um, as, as difficult as that may be, it's still, we're not called to be the lone wolf. We're not called to be on our own. We're called to be out there in the world, putting our bodies on the line. No greater love hath anyone than this than the man to lay down his life for his friends. Right. That's not like no greater love than just like enjoy your life alone. <laughs> right. Hmm. So these are, yeah, these are the exactly. ways that we're called to be in relation to each other.
0: Yeah, men are meant to be useful. That really struck me because I think that's really at the root of this. So many men, due to a lot of it's due to technological changes, they don't feel useful anymore. A lot of skills have been eroded. You know, that's at the root of uh, a lot of the drug crisis, the opioid crisis, too, is you have people who uh, no longer have their factory job and so they feel useless.
1: Yes, that is a huge part. Thank you for mentioning that because you mentioned about the crisis of purposelessness. So one of the things that I've had to do with the Renaissance of men is kind of understand the historical conditions that produced this crisis of masculinity. And so a lot of it has to do with men's purpose in the world and work. And so something happened in, um, in the late seventies and early 1980s that most people listening probably aren't old enough to know anything about or hear anything about. And, 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 but it was very, very important. So at the end of the 1970s, there was a president by the name of Jimmy Carter, and at the start of the 1980s, there was President Ronald Reagan. Most people have probably heard these names. Yeah. So in the and you can look up the data on this. In the late 1970s, a lot of the Amer- a lot of American manufacturing, the core blue collar jobs that built the nation, started to be shipped overseas to places like India, Pakistan, Mexico, and China. That process was starting. And that was happening under, under Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter then had what was called the Iran uh, the hostage crisis, this big geopolitical blunder. And then he gave, uh, on the same time, he gave this speech called the crisis of confidence speech. The Iran hostage blunder and the crisis of confidence speech were the reasons why he lost the presidency to Ronald Reagan. So what was the crisis of confidence speech? In this speech he was talking about how American jobs were going overseas, and we were losing our confidence as a nation and our ability to be producers, not Mm. consumers. That's what that speech was about. And the American public didn't want to hear any of it, especially after losing the... Especially, They didn't want to hear about, oh, we're losing confidence, and then they see the president bungle this hostage thing. So it just was a bad look. So Mm. Ronald Reagan was elected by a landslide. Now, what happened in the 1980s? The 1980s was the... Big-time birth of American consumer culture. And if you want to see this, you guys are too young, but if you guys want to see this, you can go to YouTube and you can look up hours of 1980s commercials. It's just one after another after another. All these commercials in the 1980s. It's wild. That was the birth of American consumer culture where we stopped Mm. being producers and we started becoming consumers A lot of people romanticize the 1980s. You see a lot of music that's like, oh, 80s music is so good. It was this big, you see like Top Gun and Arnold Schwarzenegger, like America is strong. But that was the beginning of the shift to us becoming a consumer mindset, not producer mindset. That happened under Reagan. And the shipping of American jobs overseas accelerated under him. And that is not a well understood aspect of American history of how we got here as men. Is the jobs that defined us as a nation went to other nations. And so we became not producers, not hunt, kill, eat. We became consumers. Just make money mm. and consume what other people produce. That's a that's a big, big part of American history that I think we're not allowed to look at yet.
0: Wow. That is really fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know the that history in that detail. And that's just so damaging. The consumerism is rampant and uh, really just an ugly part of our culture as well. And yeah. Ronald Reagan, he's, he's idle among the right wing, but I've yeah. learned a few things about him that have knocked him down quite a few pegs in my vision. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah.
1: I mean, he signed, I mean, he said, he later said it was the greatest mistake of his political career, but that's, you know, cold comfort because he was the man who signed no fault divorce into law in California right. in 1969.
0: Right. Yeah. right? Like, that was well, very damaging.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that, bro. <laughs> Oh, I feel really bad about it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I bet you do.
0: Some consolation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Dang.
0: All right, so another interesting topic would be honor. Uh, that's a very important theme in a lot of literature and, and stories from all sorts of different cultures throughout history, but I don't think it's a big part of our culture today at all, and it, mm-hmm. I suspect it has an important role for uh, for men, but I don't really know much about it.
1: Mm. So the best introduction that I've read about honor is from the book, What is Honor? by Brett McKay, who runs the Art of Manliness uh, website. It's a great little okay, short yeah. book. So I'm going to borrow a couple things from that book, as well as um, this woman named Alison Armstrong, who's been writing and speaking and about men and teaching about, about men for 30 years. She actually understands men to a, a pretty stunning degree and has a lot of love and honor for them, which is beautiful to see. Wow. So, yeah. So, uh, alisonarmstrong.com, I recommend her book, the Queens code, which you, I recommend it very highly. You can get it on Lulu.com. It's sold out on Amazon. Um, it's a great book about men. It was, uh, it was when I read it, I was like, Oh wow. I learned a lot about myself. Um, I like that. Mm-hmm. and I've done, uh, I've done two podcasts with her. Uh, and I just did a, a a dialogue, a 45 minute talk with her. That's all on my YouTube channel um, and in my podcast as well. So Alison Armstrong says, honor is doing what's right even when you don't feel like it. And I really like that because, you know, we all know in in many cases what the right thing to do is. What gets in the way? Our feelings. We live in a feeling centric culture. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. Well, that's dishonorable. Right? You do what's right even when you don't feel like it because you because you gave your word, because you know it's the right thing to do, because your conscience convicts you, because it's in the word of God, whatever. Right, And so the degree to which we are able to do that consistently creates a sense of honor inside ourselves that then radiates out through us. When you meet an honorable man, you can just kind of tell. You just kind of feel the way that he carries himself. Mm-hmm. So then Brett McKay talks about there's two different kinds of honor. There's horizontal honor and vertical honor. Horizontal honor is honor between brothers, between friends, as in Stephen and Andrew, I will do this, right? I tell you, I will do it. And then I keep my word. And then I earn honor with you. Or we, the three of us determine these are the standards that we hold each other to. We keep those standards. So we have honor with our brothers, right? And then there's vertical honor, which is honor with your conscience and God. And you need, and you need both because, uh, men who just have honor with their brothers and no conscience get into a lot of trouble real quick. <laughs> hey bro, watch this. <laughs> that's, that's how you get that. And if you just have honor with your conscience and God, and you're not actually out there in the world again, you're not, you're not contending with other men and you're not being held to a standard. So when a man does what's right, even when he doesn't feel like it, both the commitments that he makes to his brothers and his family, et cetera, and to his conscience in God, that is how you create honor as a man but we live in such a feeling centric culture that says, if it feels good, do it. The other side, if it, uh, it feels good, do it is one message. The flip side of that is if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. But doing the honorable thing ain't always right. going to feel good. Right. Yeah. So right, that's right. how we got into this predicament.
0: Yeah. That's hedonism for you. Yes. Uh, that is very damaging. That what that sort of mindset Yes, it's uh, but the good thing is, I think honor and many other virtues are they're just they're so good that when you see people exemplifying those virtues, it makes other people want to be like that as well. So the power of influence with virtue is very strong. Yes, you know, so we can start being honorable and, and it will have a great impact on those around us.
1: We become we become men that people can rely on. And they may not ever tell us, but when um, when stuff starts to go wrong, when someone needs a good man to step up and handle something, our phone rings or someone says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Mm-hmm. And they know intuitively that they can rely on you. Or you'll get into a situation where someone needs to make a decision and you'll just naturally see that everyone's eyes will look towards you. It can be very uncomfortable, right? It's like, why is everyone looking at me? Well, because they know intuitively we have the, this... I don't know that I want to call it herd instinct or intuition or this felt sense. There's all these different words, but people just kind of know when a man has cultivated honor and strength because there's a a solidity to him that everyone can feel. And when people feel that solidity, that's leadership. And when people feel we're we're hierarchical animals men are particularly and so men will naturally look at a group and see who the leader of the group is it happens automatically and so when you're in a group of men and you feel all the eyes turn to you even though you didn't necessarily sign up for that job that's the reward and then and then you have to put that virtue on like okay i guess i'm the leader in this moment i better lead in whatever minimal way and it can be a process of learning how to do that but that's what it means to become a leader like It doesn't happen in the movies that, you know, someone comes up to you and puts a crown on your head. Congratulations. Now you are the king. It's like honor is earned by, you have to win small battles. You have to Mm -hmm. win small battles and then you earn the right to have that leadership and then you've earned it and then you know it's yours versus someone hands it to you. Because working for something, putting your shoulder to the wheel is always the best way to take possession of something versus it being handed to you. And this can tie into the whole purpose conversation as well.
0: I like that. Yeah. Leadership is, uh, should not be taken lightly and it's much better if you earn it over time by displaying virtues like honor and becoming trustworthy. Uh, now it, I'd like to talk. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stephen.
2: No, it, it, the first place that I went is it made me think about uh, our country as a whole like you talking about like the the history of the 70s and 80s like we caught we had we cultivated a a virtuous prosperous society and the keys to this like country have kind of been have been handed uh, to to people who think that you know oh things are always going to be fine regardless of how consumerist we become or regardless of how hedonistic um we are and you know when you look back at like the history of our country there were there were men who had to accomplish things to 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 become leaders in this country like you talk about people specifically first person that comes to my mind is someone like Andrew Jackson that was you know had had his had his family taken away from him and had to fight in in wars and cross like the frontier and like he was a nobody he wasn't a part of the political like elite class and made something of himself or you'd listen to any of the other heroes. Th- these were men who they earned their spot at the top. And now we kind of just someone rolls out of bed and they're like, oh, this is the next uh, next great person out of this state because they have a, a good name attached to them. And I, th- I think that's that's a real thing that we have kind of got away from that that hierarchy of, uh, of competence a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, we have a managerial class. And Very uh, true. The, members, the, manager, the members of the managerial class, they don't get there because they're great at producing. They get there because they're good at managing. They're good at social influence. They're good at, quote unquote, playing the game, right? Versus mm-hmm. actually creating something and earning their way up the hierarchy. And it's that managerial class that has been driving American society for a long time. And we saw that with COVID because the entire managerial class of America with these giant institutions, and we can get into this, but I think of institutions like meta technologies that humanity has spent centuries developing. These giant technologies that we use to manage complex societies. That's what what an institution is. These institutions have been taken over by members of a managerial class who didn't build them, don't know how to build them, and have just been cultivated by fellow managers. And in 2020, they all turned simultaneously on the public and the population of America, particularly capable men who can produce. And so this is how they're using the the leverage of institutions against men and women to force uh, to force an eternal managerial system onto people, which we would call communism. And so that's that's hmm. one way to think about what's going on.
0: Dang, I'm really feeling like I need to start building stuff here. And you talk about this. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you are, wow. that's what this is. That's what these conversations right. are. Very true.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We are so, trying to build stuff.
2: I saw a one particular line on your site that said masculinity is medicine. Uh, did you mm-hmm. find that somewhere? Or did you come up with that? Cause I just, I just really, really liked that. Cause it kind of does feel like doing masculine, things is like my, my medicine, you know, working all, uh, working the entire week. Like when I'm actually like out in my backyard or working with my hands or like doing something like with the guys, like I do kind of feel like that is, you know, obviously we have our time, we go to church and we have time for the Lord and time for prayer and stuff like that. But when you are doing stuff with, you know, your fellow man, you do feel this sense of like, you know, I'm not, not worried about you know, what's going on in like the outside world. I'm worried about, you know, what's this journey I'm on with, uh, with these guys, like what's, what's my, my goal in this situation, what's my mission. So I just really want you to expand on that if you can.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great way of thinking of it is that, is that to do uh, masculine things in whatever sense that means something to you, because it, it, it finds different inspe- expression in all of us is itself medicinal. Uh, and that's a great, that's a great way of thinking of it. And that's very true. And, um, the, where you saw it on my site, which, uh, with related to my mentorship program is, um, the, and this is my own line. I came up with it. Um, society, society says masculinity is toxic. Everything society says is backwards. Hmm. That means masculinity is medicine. All I like right, it's it. Healing. Sorry.
0: I like it. That's great. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that was my own experience is that I spent many years of my life believing, believing the feminist lie. I lived in San Francisco, so I was swimming in it for years, that masculinity is somehow toxic, that my gaze is destructive, that my, that my uh, sexual impulses, you know, my desire and love for women and want to find a wife and have kids and all that stuff, that it was all bad and oppressive and patriarchal and terrible. And I lived like that way. I lived that way. I internalized that. And it took travel which I, th- I think you guys mentioned you want to get into. It took travel to start pulling those beliefs out of me. For example, I went down to um, I went down to South America, and I've told this story before. I went down to South America. Mm, this would have been in 2016. I was in Colombia, um, and uh, Colombia has uh, much more traditional sex roles than we have in America. And so, you know, I was walking around talking to girls and stuff like that, and and they were like, "Why are you being such a wimp?" They would actually say that because they're much more forward. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> right. They would actually say that they didn't even, they didn't use those words, but I, they used harsher language. And I was like, wait, I'm, I'm allowed to be more forward. I'm allowed to actually like look at you and not avert my eyes. And I said, absolutely. This is what we expect men to do. And that was when I realized that, wait a minute, this thing that I had been told in my own country about my own nature as a man was not universal, which meant it was arbitrary if it was arbitrary, then I can choose to be another way. And I can, and it seemed like everyone down in Columbia was having a great time, right? I mean, not necessarily in the most godly of ways, but it wasn't like that society was total chaos, like I had seen in San Francisco in many ways. Hmm. And so I discovered, I discovered in that moment that pursuing these aspects of myself that I had pushed down and pushed away and shamed out of myself I found that it was those aspects of myself that I needed to begin cultivating the life that I wanted, and that there was nothing morally wrong about it, except for the shame that I had been inter- that I had internalized inside my own mind and heart. Where did that come from? Well, as I started looking back, I saw it was all people who were miserable. They weren't people that I wanted to be friends with. They weren't people that I even wanted to get coffee with. Like, and so it's like if these are not people that I like. And I'm letting these these people that I don't like and don't respect have control over how I think about myself as a man. And I'm not doing anything to hurt anybody if I'm pursuing these things for my own for my own like moral interests, again, my own honor. Well, I found that continuing to do that, I grew in strength and happiness and presence. And then that's when I realized that masculinity had been shamed out of our culture in the West, and that it's actually medicinal. It's what so many men need. And, and so that's where, that's, that's where I came up with that line because that was my own journey. That's, that's so awesome.
2: Uh, you took me back to like a very like unique, like time in my life when I, I, I was like a young, like adolescent boy and just thinking I had the most fun in my youth and it wasn't, I went to Catholic school. I wouldn't consider myself like ultimately like the most rebellious kid but like you talk about yourself like i was a bit of like a troublemaker i got in i had some mischief and the people that you're talking about are exactly all the kids in school which is why the school system is so non-conducive to to boys i've heard uh jordan peterson talk about this because there's always that kid in class that like points to like the teacher like oh hey steve over there is having too much fun or he's doing x y and z like you need to like we're all having a bad time. This is school. You need to take him out. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's exactly where your conversation like, like took me, I can like think back to it in my head. I just thought that was very interesting that Mm -hmm. that that's the place it took me to, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's true. All the people that are going to tell you to, you know, not be a man, you know, subscribe to their worldview. It's because they're not, living a life of of joy excitement pursue of virtue there's probably some some vice or some issue that's that's weighing them them down so you know they're just like an anchor that just has to pull everyone else down with them it's very true
1: mm-hmm. and i want to put a couple pieces together with that so the goal of the school system public or private at this point and probably has been true for Past dependent public school since it was created, private school probably more so over the past twenty to fifty years. The goal of the school system, and you experienced it, is to have all of our rough edges sanded down and hammered down so that we can fit neatly into a corporate professional environment and not ruffle any feathers. Because a whole bunch of people doing knowledge work when we're working with our head, with our with our with our head, well, what gets in the way of of productivity with our head, our emotions, our silly emotions, right? So you got to make sure that no one does or says anything that ruffles anyone's emotions so that we can all think clearly to do our little to do our little thing. Versus you imagine men working in factories or in trades where it's like they're just throwing insults back and forth and being worked up emotionally like it can get dangerous yeah. depending on how worked up you are, but you can put it into your work. And so what Yeah, the there's public- some
2: organized chaos there.
1: Exact. Well said. Yes, and so the school system is designed to take energetic, high, te- high testosterone or testosterone fueled men and boys, right, who who are um, who are naturally full of energy and want to explore and do and create and test themselves against each other, and to sit them down and hammer off and sand off all their rough edges until they're nice, perfect little girls, so that we can all get along nicely in our corporate environment that's so friendly to women so really what the public school system is trying to do is trying to make us more amenable to corporate environments where we can work you know side by side with women which has never happened before in human history right so that's why bo- that's why men are kept at the level of boys right and women are turned into men so that women can be the ones in charge over the little boys and that's what we see in corporate America. And now that's what we see in the government in so many places. And it begins in the school, in the school system that our parents send us to, uncritically, many of them.
0: So tragic. The culture we are living in has done so much damage to men. It cultivates weakness, mm-hmm. not just in the culture, but also like our environment, like uh, you know what's in our food um, and the chemicals in our water, all this stuff just attack after attack on masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's like a 50 front war.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, re- it's really kind of frightening. Um, the number of attack vectors into, um, into our, our, our body, soul, and spirit is the division that Paul writes about in the epistles. We are body, soul, and spirit. And you can take that all apart and say, yeah, there's definitely attacks onto our body, into our body. You can watch testosterone rates declining. And I think some of that is due to our world just getting more comfortable very naturally, which is not innately a bad thing. Like I'm in Phoenix right now and it's 117 degrees outside, but it's 75 Jeez. in here. Exactly. I'm not, yeah, I mean, right. I grew up here. It's fine. But like it's it was like 122 <laughs> when I was a kid. So, um, So I'm not complaining about sleeping in a comfortable bed and being in an air conditioned environment, right? So it's right. not necessarily bad. But unless we go about choosing voluntary hardship in our everyday lives as men, that's how we get soft. And that's why combat sports and weightlifting. But then when you factor in, you know, seed oils, then when you factor in plastics, electromagnetic radiation, um, de- uh, denutritioned, denatured, excuse me, denatured food, right? You start throwing all these things in. That's a squeezing that happens, I think, to the male and the female body as well. Um, that's designed to keep us in increasingly small spheres, perhaps even to put us in the pod where we eat the bugs. <laughs> yeah. But the good news is like, you know, once you actually begin doing things to increase your testosterone or to increase your strength, to increase your honor, to subject yourself to voluntary hardship, there's nothing they can actually do. Right. There's, there's I, I, the question that I asked is where are they going to get all the fit, capable men to subdue all the fit, capable men? <laughs> that's, right. that's very true. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Luckily we're resilient we, yeah. we, uh, we're pretty tough to take down and the human body is also just really good at fighting out, fighting toxins and all that stuff. And our spirits resilient. Uh, something that is very healing for men is adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, the hero's journey, that sort of thing. Let's talk about that a little bit. It sounds like you definitely had one.
1: Yes. Yes. So, um, I've written before that the first thing that I ever wanted for myself was to travel. When I discovered that in like 2000, year 2000, and that was the, we didn't grow up traveling. My family didn't travel. It wasn't something that I I would have any reason to want, except that I wanted it. It was the first thing I wanted for myself. And so I carried that desire for 16 years. Um, And I never, I never gave up on it through all different shifting circumstances. It was something that was just part of me. It was on my mind all the time that I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to travel the world and I could have given up. At many stages along the way. Um, but I held on to it for 16 years, and that's a whole other story until the point when in 2016 I had the opportunity to travel the world. I ended up traveling uh off and on for uh for four years, actually. Wow, that's um, incredible. Yeah, that's I mean, I sold everything, sold my car. I just kept a bunch of boxes and storage, and I had a 40-liter backpack which fits in a carry-on, and that's all I had um to travel with in a shoulder bag. And so wow. I went through a number of different countries, again, South America. Asia, uh, including Japan and China and Korea, Oceania, so New Zealand, Australia, Fiji, and and then I I ended up, I finished in um, India and Nepal. And after India, I was was pretty much done. And I was training for India and I saw what I needed to see there. Dang. Mm -hmm.
0: That is really cool. Mm -hmm. I've done, I feel, a fair bit of traveling, but nothing quite like that. And so I can't even imagine what sort of uh, experiences you've had. I know from my relatively small amount of time spent traveling, like you're out in the world and stuff happens. You leave with stories, you have adventures, and that's something so important for, for men, especially in our youth.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, let me encourage everyone listening to think very seriously about setting aside You don't have to, like, I just did an insane amount of time. That's just like because I I had the opportunity and desire to, and that's just my own psychological configuration that it was fine for me. Not everyone's that way. But if you feel called to travel, allow me to recommend very, very sincerely trying to get as many weeks in a row as possible, even if it means leaving a job. So, for example, I traveled from San Francisco down to South America and I was in Argentina. That was my first stop, Buenos Aires. Mm In 30 days, my first 30 days in South America, I was uh, I was amazed at the number of things I did. Like my first 30 days, I was like, how did I accomplish so much with just a backpack? I, you know, again, I didn't travel luxury style. I wasn't in Airbnbs and hotels. I stayed in dorm rooms. I stayed in a dorm room in, in Hong Kong that had 12 people in it and <laughs> in a, in a space that was actually quite small because the bunks, bunks were stacked four up. Because Hong Kong is, of course, a very dense city. But if you can put together a five-week trip, backpacking trip to South America, particularly if you can do it alone. Although if you're if you're a woman, I don't necessarily recommend traveling alone. I mean, bring a friend for sure. Um, uh, but for for and if men too, if you if you don't think you could do it alone, bring a friend. But you can get in you can get into so many adventures that will absolutely change your life in 30 days. You know, 45 days. 60 days, and you can do it relatively inexpensively. There's a there's a guy called Nomadic Matt, and he's generally considered the budget travel authority. And using some of the tools that he provides, you can actually calculate how much will it'll cost you per day to travel. You know how to save money, get a travel credit card with points, and save up for flights. Like there's all these ways to make travel relatively inexpensive or very inexpensive, as long as you know what you have to spend for a day. And depending on where you go in the world, it's not all that expensive to travel. So um, I wouldn't recommend starting with India. You can, but that's advanced. But you know, South America, Latin America, you know, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, particularly Argentina. There's so much to do and see that will absolutely change you. And and when you travel, there's a strange thing that the amount of novelty that you experience every minute of every day makes time slow down. I think there's something in our brains that perceives the passage of time slower, the more novelty we experience. So if you've ever been like in a crisis situation where you have to make a real snap decision, like time slows down because there's so much novelty, right? Versus when we're doing the same routine day in, day out, time just seems to fly by. So when you start traveling, you're exposed to so much novelty, like 48 hours can feel like a week at home. And so you stretch that out to 30 days, the amount of novelty the experience, the number of decisions that you're forced to make, the number of things you'll see, you will come back from that 30 day experience and be like, I am so glad I did that, even if it means that you have to get a new job on the back end so you can get the time off. So I highly recommend yeah. that to people.
0: Absolutely. It is so cool to have spent some time looking back and feeling like that felt like it was so long ago when really it mm-hmm. was two days. It's the best feeling
1: mm-hmm.
0: and just racking up stories and adventures and, and seeing new things. It's very yeah.
1: cool. Yeah. Friendships, so, deep conversations. Yeah. Go
0: ahead. Um, okay. So a lot of people have a, a, kind of a gut reaction when they hear solo traveling to like, what, what's wrong with people who solo travel? Like, I don't understand. So why do you think solo travel is important? I've, I've heard a lot of people like someone in my family, went solo traveling and people were like, what, what's up with that? You know? So what is so great about solo travel?
1: Well, I think it's important to understand that not everyone is wired to do that. So I always use the example of the Lord of the Rings, right? So you look at the Lord of the Rings and you think about the hobbits, the Shire, like Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins was considered a weirdo. It's like, why does this guy like to travel? Like we have everything we need right here in the Shire. Frodo was similarly a a weirdo so um so understand that most people and when i say most i probably mean at least 90 percent of people are constitutionally wired to never travel much beyond their own hometown and that's okay that's totally totally okay there are a small percentage of people that are called to travel and that's just part of who they are and that's a good thing and i think that's god's design because um you can imagine that when we were living in small tribal villages it was necessary for someone with a spirit adventure to go meet the neighboring village to trade with or you know or or cross, you know, cross-breed with, let's say, right? That's could be an example as well. So it's not, yeah. it's not, it doesn't appeal to everybody. So if you feel called to travel and no one else around you understands, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them either. It just means that it's part of you. And so you get mm. the choice whether or not to do that. So for most people, I think that they derive at least part of their identity from the other others around them. Right. So who am I? I don't, I don't know who I am, but I have these people around me and they help provide these aspects of my identity. And if you were to remove me from these people, I wouldn't know who I am anymore in a way that makes them uncomfortable. Hmm. So for me, that was never me. So I was capable of being alone, you know, on my own in, in, daily environments buses planes trains all that stuff for a long period of time because i never derived pieces of my identity in that way that made me uncomfortable if i didn't have it so if you if you're blessed i think it is a blessing if you're blessed with that ability to be on your own for long periods of time praise god and hallelujah and you can actually go and get this new experience of yourself while traveling where you're completely isolated from the influence of anyone else so if you ever wanted to see this is why Travel is really good for people. For some people, it can be really bad for others because when you're isolated on your own, when you're in a foreign country and it's six o'clock in the morning and you have a choice whether you're going to get up and catch the bus to go on this epic adventure or whether you're going to sleep in for another couple hours and miss the bus and not have the adventure, you discover real quick whether you're truly as committed to the things you want as you say you are. And so that's why travel is such a great test. Or whether you, you know you have to be up at six, but yeah, I'll just have one more drink at 10. Oh, and then it's 11. And that's, oh, okay, I didn't want to go anyway, right? So travel is a real test to mm-hmm. see if you're about what you say you are. Um, and and, many, and the people who thrive in that, they thrive. They thrive. But people who derive more of their identity from others, others around them, they can find it very difficult. And, and, and you know, again, the last thing I'll say is like the great thing about travel... Is that it's like um, it's like it's like snorkeling or scuba diving. You go on this deep dive, and you only have a limited amount of time, right? And that time can be measured in both time and money. And so you stay, you try to stay underwater for as long as you can and see as much as you can with that. Well, that clock is ticking, and it definitely teaches you impermanence as well. And so it's a great test for people who are wired that way. And if you go in with the right intention to really honor yourself or to learn how to honor yourself. It's absolutely transformative. And that's what it was for me. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Cool. Yeah. I, it is cool to hear um, in that, you know, very articulate manner. What is the value of traveling? Because yeah. sometimes you think, oh, I just spent all this money and you can't, what, what did you really like tangibly get out of it? Um, that's, so it's cool to hear that kind of thing. Like travel was long considered by upper class people to be like a very formative thing and a part of grown in virtue. So I think that's pretty cool.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think and,
0: there's other good ways to get adventure other than traveling?
1: Yes, oh oh absolutely. It's it's it depends on what you consider adventure. Um, but I think um, I think and by the way, just real quick about upper class people considered travel. yes, and the great thing about travel now is that it's more accessible to more people than ever, which is both a good thing because it it binds it helps us see each other as humans better. It's also a bad thing in that you have to navigate through more weirdos and bad people <laughs> on the road. That's a whole, that's another conversation. So, um, the question about adventure. I think what people are really looking for when they're looking for what we call adventure is they're looking for circumstances that force them into the moment, meaning you can't sit in the corner and noodle. Mm, what should I do about this? They're looking for, because, because that's kind of how our lives are. You know, they move slow enough that we can think and think and think, and then we act and then we think and think. I think what people are looking for in terms of adventure is a period, a, a period of time where they're forced to act instinctively and to learn to trust themselves. And so you can create that, you know, on the road traveling. It's, traveling is a great way to create that. Um, and you can do it in a very short period of time. You know you can do it in seven days you know you can fly to a place and like for example you can do the inca trail or the um, um what's it called what uh Wacichina, i think is what it's called It's the other way it's the other way up to get to machu picchu in peru it's it's through the mountains so the inca trails through the jungle there's a way to travel through the mountains to to uh, machu picchu as well those are both like seven day trips the inca trail is booked out pretty far in advance But I think it's Huacachina. I'll look it up and I'll send it to you guys. But it's like a nine-day, seven-day trek through the mountains to Peru. That is a great adventure that you can do in a short time. You book two days on the front end for travel and two days on the back end for travel. you got nine days to go on this adventure. And it forces you into an environment where you're confronted with novelty moment to moment. Now, you don't necessarily have to do that by going overseas. It's easier to do because the circumstances change, but you can send yourself on an adventure here in America. You can walk the Appalachian trail, trail or the Pacific coast trail, right. or you can decide that you're going to go camping, you know, outside of outside of town and you're going to leave your phone. I don't know, someplace far from you and you're going to bring a minimal amount of food for five days so that you're basically fasting and just not have any books, not have any entertainment, no distractions, And just allow yourself to be with yourself under the stars and under the sun for five days with no, that, that can be an adventure in itself. I do think you have to leave home to go on adventure. I don't think that you can set up an adventure in your living room. Um, I do think you have to leave home, but you definitely don't have to go to India to have one or Africa or whatever that will make it easier and the stakes will be higher. um, But you can have an adventure a couple hours outside of town. If you set it up right, as long as you make sure that you're forcing yourself into a position where you are confronting the moment moment by moment. And that immediacy is what I think people are looking for. Mm -hmm. I like
0: that. And I think you have to grow from it too in some way. Yeah, definitely. There's so much, just get out of the house and life will happen and it'll be exciting.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you you can't always determine how you're going to grow, but yes, like adventure has a way of squeezing growth out of us. You have to confront a challenge. You have to be able to quit. Right, I, I did a podcast with Ed Lattimore, who's very popular on Twitter. He has a couple hundred thousand followers, and, and you know more on other platforms. And what he said is the different. There's a difference between challenging and hard, or difficult and hard. I'm not mm-hmm. sure which word he used. When something is hard, you can fail at it. Right, you can quit, and that's what makes the difference. Is that you like you can't fail at something difficult, but something hard, you can fail and you can quit. And and seeing it all the way through and not quitting is a victory in itself. That's that's pass fail, but hmm. something hard you can go with more than pass fail. You can go pass, and then you can go all the way up to like a plus, and then the growth that comes out of that, can, who knows what that is. So doing hard things, men do hard things. You know that's the that's the goal.
0: Yeah. Oh, I want to. I just thought of something that to me is the spirit of adventure that I saw in uh, my roommate. His name's Kevin. So he watched Rocky for the first time this past weekend and just absolutely loved it. Couldn't stop talking about it. And so he texted us the next morning, who wants to get up at four thirty and go into Philly and run like Rocky did from the Italian market to the art museum. So we live right outside of Philly. And okay. I was hoping we're like, <laughs> I'm like, this guy's crazy, but he said he was going to do it. And, uh, me and, one other guy, one of our other friends, joined in on it. So we got up real early, went into South Philly, the Italian area, and ran to the art museum just because we wanted to do something fun, something challenging. That's an adventure that was right here in our backyard.
1: Mm, that's great. Did you see other people doing the same thing? Is it like a daily <laughs> thing in Philly? I imagine there's hundreds no, of people. No, nobody maybe. does
0: it. I don't know why. The Rocky Run, it started here.
1: How, how far it was is that? Cool.
0: It was Actually, about three miles, so it wasn't too bad. But, and we, oh. but it was cool. We we were there, um, you know, so early that we could run in the street, and we were listening to the Rocky soundtrack. It's pretty cool.
1: That's awesome. Good for you guys. Yeah.
0: And I'm not a runner, so it was a little <laughs> tough. But <laughs> yeah.
1: fitness is a great way to start an adventure. It's it's yeah. longer, like you know, getting in really great shape. You can consider that an adventure. Um, but it's it's because you could fail at it. But it's also it can be a very long slog depending on where you're at in your, in your fitness journey.
0: Yeah. All right. I think one last topic uh, that would be interesting is, is the poetry topic, which we saw a bit about on your website. What are your thoughts on poetry? Why is it valuable?
1: Oh man. Well, um, so I do a, a series on my podcast that I intended to be more regular than it's turned out to be, but it's called poetry for men. And so what I'll do is I'll read and uh, analyze a poem from the perspective of what can we learn about this as men that will help us be better men. So in in many cases, you'll you can go onto YouTube or something like that, where they'll they'll read and maybe analyze a poem from this very neutral perspective. Oh, that's what this line means, and that's what this line means, and it's like. Hey, yeah, cool, great. Maybe that's it's beautiful, the use of language and all that. But what does it mean for me? How does this how does this impact my life? And so that's the perspective that I read and analyze poetry from. So I think I've done thirteen or so episodes, and I put a lot of effort into these uh, into these episodes, uh, not just into choosing the poems that I read, um, but also understanding the history of the authors and then into the analysis as well. So why does poetry matter? Well, we have this image. In western society of of the poet as being effeminate you know like a kind of romeo and juliet like quote-unquote romantic poet you know it's these aren't these aren't manly men well first of all some of the manliest men in history wrote and read poetry in fact there's a whole genre called cowboy poetry you can look it up Mm -hmm. so what cowboys in the wild west the actual cowboys used to do is they would memorize poems and they'd be out doing their cowboy thing or sitting around a fire and they would recite poetry to each other that they had memorized or in some cases written and there's a giant cowboy poetry festival that happens i think up in utah every year every year produce uh, preserving this tradition hmm. so this idea that poetry is not masculine is not manly has nothing to teach us is absolutely false and so when i started my podcast i really wanted um, a focus on the arts to be part of what I did, because the Renaissance of men is, of course, inspired by the idea of the Italian Renaissance. And uh, and I think that the arts have the capacity to inspire us and lift us out of the concerns of mundane, everyday reality. So I was thinking about the arts, and I was like, well, maybe I'll analyze paintings. But I'm like, what do I know about painting? And I happened to own this book called The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, um, by this uh, a, a compilation of poems uh, put together by this uh, by a man named uh robert Bly, who wrote the book iron john which started the renaissance 40 years ago Hmm. and so i'm like wait a minute i can read poetry because i can read it you don't need to look at anything i don't need any special degree in how to read right i don't need to i don't need to have any of that i can just start taking i can just read these poems and take them apart and i found that i really enjoyed doing that and people got a lot um a lot out of it and a poem is very a very unique piece of art because you can take a poem and you can print it out and fold it up and put it in your pocket and you can contain the entirety of the art that it is with you. You can't do that with a painting, right? Cause a painting could be enormous and you can't carry a miniature version in your pocket. It's not the same. You can't do it with a dance. You can't do it with a play. You can't do it with a novel, but a poem you can carry the totality of the art with you in your pocket and you can use it to inspire you. If, you have someone depending on the poem to guide you through what the poet is actually saying. And so that's what I do in my poetry for men series. And I love doing it I get a lot from it. And, um, that it's, it's consistently not my most popular episodes, but I I do it for the love anyway.
0: That's cool. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's good to really keep an appreciation of the arts involved in this sort of thing. And I'll definitely check it out. I've never been super into poetry because I usually just don't understand it. So what Mm -hmm. you're doing is is perfect
1: yeah i have a whole spotify playlist that i'll send to you guys um and so you can go through and listen to all 13 episodes and see what you think awesome
2: yeah i mean that's 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 awesome i like i like how you tied the masculinity aspect into it where yeah like how do you think the stories of you know battles and and war and trials and tribulations have just been you know passed down like you talked about the cowboy uh poetry uh festival it was just you know guys like getting together like around like the campfire and like it's you know it's the like original you know first like written form of like storytelling you know what i mean just writing in 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 stanzas not like in you know full paragraph form like oh this is what happened like the tale of of so and so it, and it goes on and on and i i think that's that's awesome. It kind of, you know, like you said, it it puts us in, in a time and place and it gives us a, a lesson to be learned. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you look at um, Homer, Homer wrote the Iliad. Exactly. Poem, right. <laughs> One of the most right. masculine things ever created. So it's just our modern age that I think is trying to drain men of their strength of connections to something higher, of connections to something beyond themselves of the transcendent we need that as men we need each other right and 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 we need the transcendent in our lives and both of those again that's can you can think of it like the same thing as horizontal and vertical honor you know if you're connected to a group of of honorable godly men and you're connected to your conscience and you're connected to god and you're connected to beauty you know that inspires us as men that fuels us and it makes us very difficult to control
0: Well said so our call to action for this episode is we're going to do a two-part one. First, go out, have an adventure, and two, read a poem.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. that's fantastic. I like uh, – do we like the order? Should we read a poem and then go on an adventure that where the poem inspires us?
0: It could be. All right. That's fair. Switch it up.
1: There we go. I have a blog entry on my website that uh, that's like 10 starter poems that you can read. Um, and then of course, there's also, you can listen, you can listen to the podcast series as well, but I put together a list of poems that are good for men to start with in various topics. I'll send that to you as well. If you don't know very where good. to start with a poem, because some poems, you know, you can get like a lot of the really classic poems. Like if you try to read Shakespeare out of the gate, yeah. Shakespeare's tough to read, right? A lot of the romantic poets can be tough to read. So it's about finding the right poem that speaks to you. Rudyard Kipling's If, mm-hmm. very popular one right? That's another, that's another, that's where a lot of men start. Invictus is another good one, but I've put together a number of poems for men who are listening. If they don't know where to start, where they can start.
0: Perfect. Very helpful. We'll put that in the link in the description.
1: Mm.
0: All right. I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Anytime, man. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.